And welcome to another edition of Young Persons Radio here on Radio Free Brooklyn. I am your host, Colby Smith, and my guest today is a writer whose work has appeared in the London Review of Books, Harper's Book Forum, the New York Times Magazine, The New Yorker, and so many more. We interviewed her back in the spring of 2019, mostly about her literary criticism. But today, she's here to celebrate the release of her debut novel, Fake Accounts, which is out Tuesday, February 2nd from Catapult Press. I'm talking, of course, about Lauren Euler. Lauren, welcome. Welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me. It's nice to see you. How are you holding up? <laughs> well, I said <laughs> said I was going to do dry January, and I'm still doing it. Okay. Um, but it was obviously like a, it was a, it was a pretty daunting uh, prospect. But I like a challenge, and I like <laughs> to do an unexpected thing. Uh, so I am going to end it early uh because I'm reasonable and I you know don't believe I believe rules are are guidelines but um I'm disappointed that I don't I haven't achieved any transcendence or anything from that yeah yeah sorry <laughs> we're, we're talking to Lauren Euler in the final minutes of her dry January <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah I think probably as soon as we're finished I'm going to go get a beer with my <laughs> <laughs> yes. today today is what January 28th um, yes yes <laughs> well, if, I mean, close enough, you know. It's 20, yeah, and it, yeah, it's good. 28 days, plus maybe one time I might have gotten like really drunk on January 5th, which didn't count, but like most, you know. <laughs> yeah, I'd say that's that counts as dry January. People say that I'm a stickler and I'm like actually very accommodating. Um, <laughs> they don't realize. <laughs> Well, I, I want to start off by talking uh, a little bit about your book. I mean, a lot about your book. I have a lot of questions about your book. Uh, <laughs> that's why you're here today. Uh, but I, you know, I was doing my research this week and uh, I have to share with you first, uh, uh, the first thing, I came across a bad review of the novel in something called The New Statesman. Are you familiar with this publication? Oh yeah, I'm familiar with the review as well. Okay, so uh, maybe I'm not telling you anything you don't already know, but repeatedly the author of this review talks about things we talked about on the show <laughs> oh, she quotes she quotes it um she quotes from the show yeah yeah like several like, times well, I could Google some of them because i was like i can write that you know um, yeah <laughs> she listened to our show yeah well i guess i want to start this interview by saying i'm sorry <laughs> oh no it's totally fine um i am uh spiritually contractually obligated not to discuss uh negative reviews so i have to i was talking to an acquaintance who had a book come out mm. recently coming recently and she was like it's really weird that everybody knows you're on twitter and they want you to say something and they're even if you don't say something they're watching you take the high road uh and i thought that that was very uh smart and also in keeping with the themes of fake accounts because i've found um well first of all in the uk they tell you who's reviewing your book so i know gotcha. most of the british uh what paper what papers are going to cover it and, and who's doing it so some of the people have been posting about it. <laughs> I've been posting about the book. Um, and I am just so totally fascinated by that behavior because I'm like, do you want me to see that you're posting about it? Like, what would you do if I replied to you? Um, 
and and like, do you want help? Like, I can I can explain it to you. Uh, and I there there is a sense in which the book reviewing apparatus wants to think of itself as sort of a traditional old school sort of thing. Um, but <laughs> this behavior uh, indicates that perhaps it's not so um, hallowed as it maybe it once was. Yes. Yes. Yeah. We're just, we're just, you know, we're just starting, you know, fights in the playground right now. Yeah. But now I have to be really careful what I say on the show because it's not a safe space. No, I mean, I look, this is, I, I will, I was gonna, I was expecting to start this interview by saying to you, yeah, you know, I, I consistently get numbers on your episode. Like it's, it's been one of the highest, you know, some of the best numbers you've ever done was like your episode. And now I know that it's not just people being like, wow, great show. <laughs> No, they're, they're gathering material. Yes, exactly. Well, look, uh, you know, I'm glad that you felt like you could come back, even though everything you say <laughs> is even more scrutinized now. Yes. Well, I think, too, that the, the, like, feeling of being possibly scrutinized, but wanting it to not be true, but, but having to leave open the possibility that what is on the record is going to be used against you is um, a big contributor to our horrible social problems that we have <laughs> these days. <laughs> well, I'm happy to bring light to them any way we can. Um, I want to get into uh, talking about the book and just start um, generally by saying, you know, we were kind of hinting at this right before the show, but the book is very funny. Uh, it's chock full of really just like good jokes. And I was wondering if you if that was like important to you writing it that you just like set out to make it fun and funny or if that's just kind of like a natural you know sort of facet of your voice well um well it's totally natural just you know all the jokes just come out of me perfectly formed um but <laughs> seriously i i do want it to be fun and i do want it to be sort of entertaining i think there's this false opposition between art and entertainment which mm. for good reason um a lot of entertainment is really shitty but I think there's no reason that a serious book has to be self-serious and take itself super seriously. Um, so I also try to follow this advice that I read. I think Ella Fatiman said this in an interview when, mm. when the idiot came out. Um, and it was, it's something like whenever something made me laugh, I kept it in, even if it was totally like irrelevant to whatever was going on in the plot mm. or, or with the themes or the ideas. Uh, and I think that that's great advice. Um, obviously, you're always sort of afraid that your jokes aren't going to land or whatever, but um, you ju I just wanted to go for it in that way, I guess, because it's, you know, it's nice to enjoy. It's nice to be spending time with something that you actually enjoy and like want to come back to. And I find that I have that with books so rarely anymore that um, I would hope that some people would the same way about mine totally i mean i do think that it it can turn people off of a book to like open it up and just and everything is very like dour and like you know not not pretentious exactly but it's just like it puts you in this headspace of just like i think you're saying in the book like the beautiful nuance of everything you know and i, I think i think they can't like that attitude i think really does I think it can turn readers off. So it was like very like refreshing to see like, you know, this is a book, you know, from, you know, uh, uh, a literary critic. So it's like, this is, you know, this is what you think is important. Yeah. And I think too, that 
I try to apply proportion to everything that I write and mm. try to, you know, even if I'm freaking out about something, which I do often, or I get really mad about something or whatever, I try to understand, I try to place it in context and sort of, you know, not put too much emphasis on little irrelevant things. And I think that that sort of irreverence uh, helps. It helps write the novel as well because you don't get caught up being precious uh, with right. your, your sentences. Um, and I wanted to have that sort of quality that she, it's a very specific style and voice, but she does seem like she's talking to you in a mm. certain way. And I wanted to cultivate that. Yeah. Can I tell you my, uh, my favorite joke in the book? Yes. Yeah. Just keeping this thread going that the new statesman's pointed out of me quoting your work back to you. Oh my God. Well, I also am like, I haven't, I have not listened to her interview and I'm not going to, but yeah. the idea that I, I don't know. <laughs> Whenever someone gives me a compliment, I try to say thank you. That's very, you know what I mean? Like, what right. are you? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. What do you mean? You were supposed to shut me up? You're just supposed well, to like, no. Am I supposed to, am I supposed to dislike compliments? Like, yeah. Who compliments. Yes. I'm supposed to pretend, you know, pretend that uh, I don't, I don't think that my work is good, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess, yeah. I hope, I hope that if I didn't think my work was good, I wouldn't do it anymore. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, my favorite joke in the book is, is the section where the narrator's talking about how her roommate in New York is like having an affair with uh, like a prominent New York Times journalist and the affair is discovered and they break up and she's very sad. And she tells the narrator, you know, he said we should start a podcast together. And your line is like, um, <laughs> she wailed she wailed of the journalist at the kitchen table and I thought he probably says that to all the girls <laughs> but it's true it's that's how it is and that's another to go back to the point about it being funny you know it, the time that we live in is very funny yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's this sort of this sort of like petty banal the details of our life online and offline are just hilarious and I think like shying away from representing them in literature is um you're, you're really giving something up if you don't put put podcasts in your know <laughs> <laughs> uh well on the note of things that are are in the novel I, I wanted to say that one of the things that sort of struck me about it right away was just kind of how like unapologetically specific it is about its milieu and kind of its moment in time um I mean like for me personally like I was working in media in 2016 and I never expected the to encounter to be reading a novel and to encounter the words the pivot to video so <laughs> I, I guess I wondered what you were thinking about in terms of including including details like that they're that just like so unique to that moment well I think the sort of classic writing advice is to be be really specific and it's much easier to pull things off if, if you narrow your focus and mm. get really um, specific again with, with the details. So I wanted to put a scene in which the narrator is at her job. She's a she's working at a, a nameless Brooklyn media company and, and to be I imagined it as a real sort of mashup of like all of I imagined it as like Gawker, Vox, Vice. Um, mm all put together um and 
she, I thought it was important to have that in this book because I, it's a it's a novel about the internet and I wanted to have a sort of like behind the scenes. These are the people who are producing what we see on the internet and they're all just absolutely miserable and sort of having a good time. They're, they're funny, I think. And, mm. and it's, there are some like absurd scenes in the office, um, but they're super depressed. <laughs> uh, and, and it's just really bleak. Uh, so in order to represent that, you have to say pivot to video. Right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and there was this big drama at the time uh, that this takes place where, you know, Facebook was, Facebook was, I can't even remember exactly what the details were, but like Facebook was, had a policy and the algorithm changed so that it prioritized video content. Mm. And so all the companies were like rushing around trying to improve their video apparatus. And they're just, you know, videos cost tons and tons of money yes. to make. Working in editorial for one of these websites, it was so baffling because we were first of all like, why would anyone want to watch a video when you could read an article and it takes much less time, requires much less, you know, attention yeah. and you can do it at work. And yes, <laughs> and it just seemed totally baffling to us. And then you would occasionally see people say, no, I know people who watch these videos. The videos are real. They get traffic or whatever. Um, I don't, I don't know where we are with that now. I think that we've passed the pivot to video if I'm, if I'm. It seems that way. Yeah. But um, it was a real like frenzy, like apocalyptic media is gonna totally change. It's all gonna be video. And I mean, like these little videos, I think they cost like tens of thousands of dollars to make. And they're just oh, yeah. like, not how to fit, put a fitted sheet on your bed, how to fold a fitted sheet was like a big popular one, right? Like who can just read an article about it? <laughs> or like no, how to absolutely. make mac and cheese. I don't know, you know, <laughs> like they were yeah, just seriously. So absurd and stupid. If you just stop to think about it for a second. Oh yeah, but I mean, it is it is the, the the expense of it is like the crazy thing because like I mean, you're absolutely right. Like entire sites just like closed down because they were trying to chase that thing, and it just like it passed in a year, maybe. Yeah, and and I don't. I mean, I think some of them got good traffic, but it was not. It was not this like the people want this, right? right. It was something that Facebook had done, and right. you know, I think this is sort of. I don't want to make it this like a systems novel or anything sure. like that but but it, i thought it, it was important to put facebook in there and have it ha have it be clear that like facebook could dictate something and everybody would like run around trying to to please them and yeah. i think that's how it works with social interactions as well like something happens on facebook and there are all sorts of repercussions like in the mm. world and online right did did any part of the of wanting to write this particular story come out of a frustration of not really seeing the internet or social media really portrayed in contemporary fiction much at all just because it's it's so ubiquitous but it seems like no one wants to really write about yeah, it directly treat it as the background and i i yeah. totally understand why they do that because i think it is difficult to sort of register it without it becoming immediately dated and i think to their credit many novelists are not really on it um mm. there's a real idea that that is is has value that um you you know you need to not be online too much in order to write a novel because you need your attention and right. i understand that and i sort of agree <laughs> but <laughs> at the same time um i think that you know the day is very long <laughs> and, <Yeah. laughs> And if you're interested in representing reality as it really is and not a sort of projection of sure. your own sort of ideas about it, then I think 
it's really important to put the internet in there and mm. put how people act on the internet in there and how people respond to the internet. Um, but I know it really, I know it really well. Yeah. So it wasn't like it required a lot of research. Right. Well, what was, I guess, <clears throat> one of my questions was uh, for you was, was sort of about what your working process was like on this. I know you, you said you wrote the book like throughout most of 2017, um, I believe. Um, and, you know, you hinted at it a little bit before of just like kind of needing the time away from the internet to actually work on it. But, you know, also your job is essentially to kind of be in tune with that stuff and, and, and you know, pick up on the conversations people are having, not just about books, but also the culture at large. And I guess I was wondering how you you sort of balance the two? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I, sometimes I'm like, I can't believe I wrote that whole novel. And like, sure. my like you wrote that, you wrote, when did you do that? You know? Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I think, I really think that time is long and you have a lot more of it than it feels when you have a full-time job. When I started writing it, I had, I wasn't working full-time at Vice right. anymore. Um, and I had to do lots of money work, but there was still lots of time to do it. And, but I don't, you know, you have to work on it a little bit every day, but you don't yeah. have to do it every day. You just have to work on it, you know, in bursts. Um, but yeah, I did it from the beginning of 2017. So I started it sort of right around the time that the novel actually starts and then mm. went through maybe the summer of 2018 is when I finished the first gotcha. draft. Gotcha. And the revision process, what was that like for you? Did you find it to be like taking it, making it funnier or like what, what were, what were, what was that process like? I did some punching up as they say, um, <laughs> yes. but I think more of it was like, it was pretty much the bones of it were there. I also, mm -hmm. I find that book editors in contrast to rather publishing people. So sure. when you sell a book, you, you get an agent, the agent gives you comments, um, and then you try and sell, you try and sell it. And then the editors give you comments. Mm. Um, my experiences with the publishing industry with ghostwriting as well, is that book editors really think that like a very small number of reasonable edits are like a lot of edits. Whereas if you're writing for magazines or websites, you just are constantly changing all of your shit all the time and like rewriting yeah. things at the last minute. So it was, the structure was all there. It's pretty much chronological because she's mm. telling the story from, you know, in retrospect. Uh, and um, yeah, it was, it was pretty straightforward. I think I caught yeah. one and I added one big, a couple of big scenes and okay. like a spiritual issue that I, wanted to resolve um and that's about it and then I got you know a little bit into copy editing but again it's a sort of interesting thing where I think so you if you read the galley the galley comes out in August I did well well so <laughs> I'm just I'm just saying like it's I think many people who aren't involved in publishing are like it's totally opaque I don't understand how it works so sure. yeah yeah I it's and it's interesting to me so stop me if it's boring but basically what you do <laughs> you do a set of copy edits and then there's the draft that turns into the galley that goes out to reviewers and booksellers and all sorts of industry people and that comes out that goes out like six months before the book comes out after the galley goes out you do two sets of proofs so you can mm -hmm. change like little sentency things and errors and whatever but you can't like add things that will ch radically change the page count or cut right. things like that so it's an important, it's the copy edit is important and then you have two more chances. So like in the proofs, 
I made, I think, <laughs> 225 changes, which to me, that's less than one per page. And to me, that seemed like basically nothing. I was like, oh, that's totally normal. That's, right. you know, should I be making more? I was like freaking, I was like, should I be making more changes? Um, and then I was talking to my friend and, and she was like, I've made so many changes and it was like less than that. So I was oh, like, okay. <laughs> really, really different ideas about what editing is. And I think mm. that that's fine. I think that that's good, but I am happy that I have like a, what I feel is a very healthy relationship to editing, which is that you do it for a reason. Um, and if you weren't making any changes during edit, then the edit would be pointless and you would just be wasting your time. Right, right. Um, I would love to uh, go keep on this path of talking about specific words uh, in the book uh, uh, for a little bit as well. Um, it kind of what we were talking about before about kind of the specificity of the milieu and the moment in time and everything. Um, I think on a similar note, there are there are moments in the book where you're kind of incredibly specific or sort of like I searched for apartments on Craigslist or the roommate was like watching Sex in the City on Amazon for the first time. Um, but then there are sort of other moments where you're much more more general, you know, like you don't name the website you work for, you know, she just says she, she works in media or, you know, you say the fancy grocery store, you don't say Whole Foods. And I guess I was wondering what went into when you decide to say, you know, I was on Craigslist versus kind of hinting at a, a greater idea of the thing. Uh, I think in part, and this is probably not a hard and fast rule, but I think in part, if it, if it doesn't, if it doesn't correspond to a real thing, then I don't, I don't really name it. Obviously mm. I name characters and they don't correspond, yeah. correspond to anything in the real world, but the narrator is not named and she's clearly like uh, similar to me and, and purposefully sort of cheekily so, but she's like not me. And I'm sort of trying to make that point more explicit. Um, and so like the website is, is not really any website right. that exists, but it's, it's like, all of these websites sure. in the grocery store actually I wasn't even thinking of Whole Foods I was thinking of like a little grocery store um is like any you could put anything in there it doesn't really matter right. what it is um so and I think maybe in an earlier draft I had her looking at the iPhone and then mm -hmm. she was like I don't know why I'm calling it I'm saying the phone it's the phone everyone had is the iPhone but I think I cut it out but but at one point I was like not using names like that and then I was yeah. like, this is it's historical yes it's it's part of the historical record. That's what our life is. It's these sort of tech brands and things like that. Totally. And it would get tiresome after a while to like not say Twitter and just kind of be like scrolling through my feed, wink, you know? Yeah, I think Anna Wiener does that well in Uncanny Valley, which is to say mm. she doesn't have any names. Um, and she it, it has this sort of um, eerie effect that's quite cool. Mm -hmm. uh, but for this because that book exists i'm glad that i didn't do it because it's already been done it's already been done right. so i dodged a bullet on that one <laughs> totally um talking more about the language of the book a little bit um i know the last time you were on the show we talked a, a very little bit about helen dewitt and and specifically the way she sort of doesn't have any preconceived notions about what the novel has to look like i think is one of the strengths that we talked about before um but you know, there's just kind of a, a a precision to the language in your book that that kind of reminded me of her. And I don't know if that's just because I read some trick finally recently. Um, but I was wondering if you were thinking about her at all while writing fake accounts. I mean, I appreciate that. It's that's she's like the best in my mind, at least. Um, yeah, I mean, I was I wasn't thinking about her directly, but I think mm. that there are people. I wasn't trying to be like make this like Helen Dewitt. I think that sure, sure. it's bad to emulate people too directly. Um, mm. But I think 
she in particular and and some other writers you know really goes for it she's not afraid to be super experimental she's not afraid to like make a weird joke that not everyone's going to get but that will have real value for people who do get it um and she's not afraid to do sort of inscrutable annoying things <laughs> um and i really wanted to sort of cultivate that same you know adherence to like whatever is best for the work and not be super um worried about what a hypothetical reader might think yeah uh, right um and and i think you know yeah that's that's basically <laughs> yeah <laughs> well it, it reminded me of our, our conversation also because so much of what we were talking about last time was how was kind of how she approaches structure uh of the book and you you address structure very directly uh in this one and what what was sort of the thought process behind that yeah i think i mean it's sort of experimental in this way that she is experimental which is that it's in your face like you're yes. not it's not subtle it's 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 making a point very directly and yes. it's like funny it's a funny but serious point and i think yes there's a page that says the middle <laughs> yes um and i was thinking about i wanted to see i wanted it to be very intentional i wanted to to emphasize not just that the art, the novel is an, is artificial and that it, it is something made, mm -hmm. but that um, I'm in sort of control. You right. are reading like it's not a it's not a it's an exchange, but it's not a live exchange, right? Like I'm not making you do any work, mm -hmm. <laughs> basically. Um, and I, you know, you can do work if you want to, but that's you know extra credit, I guess. <laughs> yes. <laughs> But I think I was really interested in putting a sort of autofictional narrator type of character in a really traditional um, plot structure. Yeah. Um, which which pe people tend to talk about autofiction as if it has to be this sort of um, moody, fragmented, essayistic, nothing happens, and, and that there's no reason that that has to be true. Hmm. So that's that was what I was thinking with the structure. And I thought it would be quite funny to be frank to title, uh, to title a section, <laughs> nothing happens. Um, <laughs> because people are always complaining about that or they're like, nothing happens, but somehow it's really good. And I'm like, well, we'll te we're testing you now. <laughs> yes. Is it really good? We'll find out. Totally. Well, I, I did want to ask you sort of how important plot was to you when you set out to write this, because there is there is a structure and there is, there is, there's incident in this book, like big things do happen and they kind of happen unexpectedly because there is this sort of not lackadaisical, but the middle section of the book, especially is like very episodic by design, you know, um, and then just sort of something happens and it's just like, oh, right, we're, you know, we have a plot. Yeah, <laughs> like a, um, a yeah exactly. <laughs> um, so yeah, how, how important was kind of like a traditional plot structure to you and other than the ways of just kind of playing with it, you know, in a very meta kind of way? Well, I was thinking about like how things happen in real life because I think mm. in a sort of traditional thriller type of book, um, the events are really foreshadowed, right? And, and things are really sort of anticipated and set up and, and, and there's a real play with the reader, but I wanted to try and see if I could make it really dramatic and make sort of really weird, unbelievable things happen mm. within the context of a realist novel. 
And I wanted to try to represent how it would actually be if something so bizarre happened to you and how you would actually react. And it wouldn't be this sort of one-to-one translation of like, oh, the event happened and here are the consequences and here are her feelings about it. And she processes her feelings about it and then comes out with a lesson, right? Like that's not real. Right. So, and simultaneously, I think from the beginning, I was interested in this sort of apocalyptic thinking that was going on in 2017 and and continuing to go on today. Yeah. Um, and, And this sort of desperate dreading of like terrible disaster and trying to sort of anticipate the disaster and all of the sort Mm. of writing was like look at all the bad things that are going to happen and then I I at least think something bad usually does happen to you but it's never the thing that you think about and prepare for it's always something like totally out of left field so and there's an analog, I think, in fiction where you have a sort of apocalyptic structure where you know, the reader knows something bad has happened and then the book describes how it takes place. Yeah. So I wanted to do a kind of switching thing where the reader thinks the bad thing that's going to happen is the character is gonna break up with her boyfriend. And then, and she also thinks that that's true. And so she's like, here's here's the drama of this book. And then she gets totally like sideswiped by this completely other event, uh, completely different event. Um, and that's goes from, it doesn't, doesn't know what to do and sort of ends up in this meandering section where she's like, I need a structure, I need a plot. Like, where's the plot? Uh, where's the drama? The drama's gone. So she has to sort of make it herself. Absolutely. And, and she really, she really does. I mean, I think we should, I think we should, we should talk about the dating section in the middle for a little bit. This is the stretch where you, you kind of parody this, this, uh, this very like fragmented style um, of, of novel writing that, you know, again, we talked about last time you were on the show. Um, and I, I got to this section, I saw what you were doing and I thought to myself, oh, we're cooking now. <laughs> So in this section, just to set it up for folks, um, the narrator just sort of goes on a string of of um, online dates, and then uh, just like uh, has a different persona for for each one. And I guess what struck me and what felt so real to me about this section, even in the midst of this, you know, uh, this structure that she's imposed on it, is how unsexy all of the dates are for the most part. Um, yeah. And I mean that like as as a compliment because you know there are just these she encounters these like there's someone comes on to her very clumsily at this party at the English speaking bookstore and then there's the guy who explains something called relationship anarchy mm-hmm. at her for the entire date. I mean, were these drawn from friends' stories, your stories? Like it, they all struck me as like very true to life. Thank you. Actually, I think I made up almost all of them. Wow. But this is the thing, you know, This there may be some details that I've pulled from places, but the dates are pretty much exclusively made up. Okay. Um, so I appreciate that they seem very real. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, and I think there there is this sort of episodic repetitive like reiterative quality to everything we do online like it's like mm. again we're scrolling again it's not it's not a continuous thing it's re- repetitive and it's this re- weird cycle and so I think she's trying to like break the cycle in a weird way by doing all of these different personas but it ends up just sort of becoming more recursive and it just becomes super super boring and I you know the the guys are like varying degrees of sympathetic I think that they're they're not like totally 
she always will sort of empathize with them at the end of the day. And then she'll be like, well, anyway, I'm going to do this again. Uh, <laughs> yes. Doesn't reform at all. Um, the, you know, <laughs> there's like the guy from the English speaking bookstore who's like weird and clumsy and like mm. makes her feel weird, but she's able to, to sort of ignore it because she's pretending to be someone else. And she's like, oh, why not? I'm trying new things, whatever. And, and I think I see it at least what she's doing is like really searching for a structure to like lend her life meaning. And so that is the sort of parallel, the sort of parallel to the fragment section because she's sort of trying out like a structure to lend the text and mm -hmm. her life um, some significance and it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. to, you know, I, it was important to me that she not learn anything except maybe a cynical lesson about life and then everything that she tries sort of fails but she has to keep going anyway. Right. Um, but yeah, also to be fair about the fragments, it's super fun to write that stuff. And yeah, like you could just go on forever. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Nothing really has to connect you. It's just like, yeah, this we'll throw this in here. Yeah. Or it's like an evocative moody connection and, and you know, whatever. <laughs> yes. I, I think my initial resistance to the fragments is that I have never once thought of life that way. And mm -hmm. I've never, even though, you know, I studied lots of poetry in college, I like, no, you know, I have read a lot of them and a lot of, you know, sometimes they work really well, but I have never thought of life in this way at all. Yes. I've never told a story in this way, even though I often interrupt myself and like go on tangents or whatever, it's all very continuous to me. Yeah. So I didn't want to like do that for that reason. Yeah. Well, I, I think you, you say it in one of the interviews I read this week, I'm, I'm struggling to remember which one about how, how you it was important to you to just, just write good paragraphs in this book mm -hmm. um yeah i mean i want to i want to write well in like a sort yeah of, you know i think i'm a pretty contemporary like weird writer but in the end i love a sentence structure i love grammar i love paragraphs and you know that's what i like to read and that's what i want to put in the book yeah. Um, we are now going to move on to a segment of this interview that I would like to call uh, Colby's favorite lines. Uh, oh, no. <laughs> and You're drawing me back into the- I know. The I'm, I'm setting you up. <laughs> embarrassing. I hate it. <laughs> Very good, Lauren. <laughs> That's more like it. <laughs> Um, the first one I want to bring up is there's a description of Felix, the, the boyfriend character, um, as having wanted to be transformed into a good artist by lifestyle politics and abnormal sleep schedules and elective struggle, which, speaking just for myself, you are not saying this, I feel describes so many people one meets in New York. Um, where did this particular descriptor come from for you? Well, I think it came from people that I'd met in Berlin and, and not, and also my own experience living in Berlin, right? Like yeah. I think this real idea of a bohemian lifestyle and, and that by living the lifestyle, you will change your attitude and you yeah. will be able to accept things as part of the lifestyle. And it very rarely works out that way because it's, there are a lot, you know, there are drawbacks to basically every situation and every choice that you make in life. <laughs> so, so on one hand, it's just a sort of satirical, biting description but on the other hand like it's about how you know to quote Sheila Hetty how should a person be and I think that the sort of 20-something project of trying to be a certain way um 
it is ultimately about like searching for something that has no downside and to be a real adult you have to admit that like everything has a downside yeah. <laughs> and yeah. that's just how it is totally um second favorite line okay. <laughs> um this was this is pretty early on this is on weekend mornings before felix moved to new york i would get up early to read and type or exercise but with felix i stayed in bed awake doing nothing and worrying about it as he slept on do you see so i guess i should say that first of all this was sort of a key moment to me in sort of understanding what the book was going to be about so like already we know that this that this relationship is kind of in pushing her more toward this uh, you know, kind of very online lifestyle that very much the book is, it means to kind of meditate on. Um, this rang extremely true to me of just like, you know, just laying in bed, not even really knowing why you're on your phone. Um, did you, uh, this is a silly question maybe, but did you realize how uh, um, sort of important this like little moment would be throughout the rest or, or was it just kind of tough stuff? No, I mean, yeah. I think while I was writing it, I found and cultivated lots of, I hope, subtle parallels between yeah. her life in New York and her life in Berlin and her, her how Felix is and how she becomes. And they're yeah. not sort of exact total overlaps, but there are lots of correspondences and lots of sort of doubling instances in the book. And I think right. that does eventually arrive again, but she's alone in Berlin and she's like on her phone <laughs> And I mean, to be frank, it just comes from that being totally my experience all the time. Yeah. And I continue to do that. Like I've not learned anything from writing the book <laughs> in <terms of laughs> my life. Um, I uh, still like lie in bed for a really long time. Like sometimes like really a lot, it feels sort of like productive in a weird way. You're like, I'm catching up on what's happened in the night and it's yes. the or whatever, but actually you've like been in bed for like 45 minutes. <laughs> And fully awake, ready yeah. to go. <laughs> doing nothing. I mean, it's to, to be fair, people have slept in um, for centuries. I don't think that that is abnormal to like want to stay in bed uh, for a long time, but it's really easy to do now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's yeah. Not, it's not ever going to get boring to be there. Totally. Um, well, I, I, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. No, I just think too, the fact that he's sleeping while she's sort, sort of suffering silently looking at the phone for 45 minutes or whatever cultivates this like resentment in her because she's like yeah. why can he sleep and there's this I don't know I tend to believe that men can sleep later than women or there's like an old <laughs> wives saying or something that like you know what are women doing while you're sleeping and I just in my experience men are all much better at sleeping than <laughs> men um so there is an autobiographical element there yes <laughs> we found it <laughs> yeah. well I think what you're what you're getting at which is another thing that is very much on the book's mind is like the justifications people make to spending this much time on on these platforms right it's just like well you know what I'm, I'm catching up I'm making sure I'm in the know you know I'm educating myself blah 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 um and I think there is probably some truth to that in some way I mean there are certainly things that I know you know, or, or like ideas that I've been awoken to that I've, I've learned from writers I follow on Twitter, you know? Um, so it feel, I always feels like there's like just enough of a shred of doubt. Like maybe there will be something worthwhile on there when I check. Yeah, I think, and I think that there is. I mean, I wrote a, no a whole novel. About yeah, it. yeah. <laughs> it's actually inspiring. 
Um, and you do learn things. And I think for a writer, uh, it's good to be aware of it, even just because I think that often writers who are not on it can mm. say something quite tone deaf or just sort of boring or old, and they don't realize that they would have processed their ideas much faster if they just looked at Twitter sometimes. Right. Um, and I, I mean, I am an observer of the social interactions that happen there because I find that really fascinating. And yeah. after a novel, it's it's just totally gold golden material. Yeah. Um, but would my life be better if I didn't do it? Like probably, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, the final final passage I want to sort of call attention to is um, I, like many people, read the profile of you in the cut this week, and I was really excited to see them highlight the Harriet the Spy uh, chunk near the end of the near the end of the book. And I wanted to ask you, sort of, in light of that passage, do you think there's an element in the narrator's response to Felix that's a little like, how dare you? Like, how dare you trick me? I'm the one who tricks people. Yeah, I yeah. think that she tries to beat him some she's always trying to best him and he yeah. totally beats her seemingly um casually right yeah um and there are sort of different elements to what he does that we don't need to give away but hmm. but uh i think the you can see her sort of embarrassment as like a kind of not a punishment because they're both like in the dirt, right? Like right. everybody who's online is just in the mud and it's a disgusting person. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> can't come out clean. Uh, but the Harriet the Spy thing is, is a very useful analog to sort of like why people are doing what they're doing online, I think. And there's yeah. also what you're talking about before, like people have all these reasons about why they do the things that they do, why they spend so much time there why they find it so interesting and there's all these sort of denialist like illusions that they have delusions mm -hmm. would be uh, the way <laughs> to actually say that uh, <laughs> all delusions and at the end of the day it's really like they prioritize getting attention from other people over right. almost anything else um and the narrator has this you know has this tendency in her from a very young age which is what the harriet the spy anecdote mm -hmm. sort of shows Totally. Um, I, I lied. There's one more. <laughs> um, there's, there's a passage near the beginning of the book where the narrator sort of contrasts Felix's background to her own. Um, and I, I, I'm going to read it just because I want to make sure I get it right, which is, um, unfortunately, because of my own biographical information, I tended to be overawed by the kind of glamorous intellectual upbringing Felix described, as well as impressed by the rejection of institutions implied by the dropping out, the living in Berlin, the working of a terrible job in order to, I assumed, pursue art making. I didn't think to question his account, which was just interesting, not unbelievable. I might have been insulted by the flippancy with which he discarded a life that a younger me had wished she'd lived, but by that point, the majority of people I knew were totally oblivious upper middle class types. I mean, we weren't rich, <laughs> so I no longer cared. Um, you and I are from very similar backgrounds. Like I, I think my hometown is maybe like an hour from where you grew up in West Virginia. And I have always, uh, on a personal note, just kind of been, uh, I've, I've really respected the way you talk about where you grew up, because I think that there is a tendency to, um, not, I feel like people who are from like small towns like us, they either like 
really try to hide it or just like not talk about it. Or it's this like, I pulled myself up by my bootstraps, uh, like a romanticizing of it a little bit. Um, and I don't think you really do either, at least in like what I've I've read and, and talked to you about. And I guess I was wondering how you navigate that or if you sort of feel um, similar to the narrator, which is you've gone back and forth of, of those two ends of the spectrum. Yeah, I think that I, I mean, in terms of talking about West Virginia, I just try not to say anything wrong or anything that I don't believe, which is like, yeah. how I've tried to do all my writing. Um, and, uh, you know, West Virginia, you can easily sort of take credit for it. Like people always yeah. ask me, when are you gonna write a novel about West Virginia? And I'm like, right. I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I think that it is necessary to write the kind of novel about West Virginia that I would write, um, mm. just because it is not this sort of like noble, rural, you know, like sequestered, paradise it's like right. very bleak and not bleak in the sort of narratively you know tidy way like mm. it's it's brand you know there's tons of brand there's walmart everywhere there's taco bell you know it's like all this stuff so yeah. so it's very important to me to not misrepresent myself in that way and not try and take credit for it um sometimes you know i descend onto a twitter argument and i have to point out to people that I'm not from the East Coast uh, because I don't like being subject to ad hominem attacks. But, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I think there's that element in that, in that passage. But it was also important to me that you actually don't ever find out what the narrator's biographical information is. So I think yeah. it's very tempting to say like, oh, it's probably just Lauren, like wherever she grew up. Sure, um, sure. It, could really be, it could really be anywhere. And also yeah. Felix, you also never know if he's lying about what he says or anything like that. And I think it does sort of speak to the way that people sort of misrepresent their background. Or if you're from a sort of wealthier suburby kind of bourgeois I mean we weren't rich kind of background you're saying things like I mean we weren't rich all the time um and you're downplaying the fact that your parents are highly uh well-educated professionals and yeah. you only received a small inheritance when you, you know like that that kind of you know that kind of thing um so <laughs> I think I wanted to sort of highlight like that kind of misrepresentation totally that, right yeah yeah um, I would love to segue to a couple of um, sort of press uh, things about you real quick before we get to our lightning round uh, to, okay. <laughs> to end the show. Um, first of all, the, the, the Wall Street Journal profile that came out last week, I believe, I thought was, was really great. But the, the title, of course, calls you the literary world's provocateur and okay. the subtitle then says you are known for your takedowns. Um, lots of people, uh, um, when they write about this book, um, uh, feel compelled to mention this. And I was wondering if you sort of bristle at this perception of you as like a mean girl or, <laughs> or <laughs> if you've come to embrace it a little bit. Well, I think, I think I have been a culture journalist, uh, and I will probably do culture journalism in the future. And so I think it's important to, to tell people who don't know why we're talking about Lauren Euler and it's because this is why um <laughs> I you know I do appreciate when the reviewer or the or the interviewer or something 
talks about other things. Uh, I think yeah. <laughs> uh, I think that the responses I appreciate best are say something like, you can tell that you really care about books and literature and that you really care yeah. about language and that's why you do this. And it's not because you're a mean, you know, you don't, you have a reason, you have a reason to do it and it's not um, unfair. Right? Yes, it's not just to show everyone how it's done. <laughs> yeah, and I can see why people would disagree with that, but obviously, I, that's not, you know, obviously I think that that's true, that I do it for a reason and it's because I care about books and I care about like speaking truthfully and things like that. So there's that. Um, but it also, there's this like weird element where it's like, well, it creates interest, I guess. So, I, mean, I mean, that's true too. <laughs> most, books, most books really don't get this kind of, um, attention anymore and I think that that's yeah. sad and I try to like draw attention to the things that I like um when I encounter them and try to also I think like um I was quite happy that I got to write about Atessa Moshvig's re most recent novel and yeah and I really praised it I thought it was really good and most people thought it was bad so yeah uh, and I think that they're wrong I think it was quite good uh so my you know I didn't do that on purpose, you know, I, it's like, I don't do these things on purpose. They're just sort of things. That's just how it is. And I don't want to lie. And I think that a lot yeah. of people do lie. And I think that they do sort of allied things that I wouldn't align. So it's fine to be a mean girl, but <laughs> no, I do think that the book is very sad. Ultimately. Yeah. Um, and so when, if someone misses that, it's actually quite sad. That makes, that's a bummer. Well, I, I will tell you, I mean, not to give anything away to anyone who's listening who hasn't read the novel yet, but the the ending, it hit me like a ton of bricks, Lauren. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Just that last line, I was like, oh, no. <laughs> like, <laughs> I felt for her in that moment. I know. And she really gets, I know, I don't want to give it away. No, no, no. <laughs> that it was. I, I like, I like it. I'm proud of the ending. I'm proud of the ending. So yeah, that's yeah. here. And I think <laughs> it's a depressing, I think I do come to a conclusion and it's like a, a depressing one. And I think she does kind of have, there is like a, an epiphany of sorts, but it's not mm. a good, it, it's not good. <laughs> totally. It's not like, it's not like I've changed, you know, it's not this, you know, this like, it's not growth really in the way that we mean that. No, not at all. There's no growth. Yeah. Um, there's just under increased understanding. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, one one quote that I really loved in this uh, Wall Street Journal profile was this uh, thing you say. You say, "I always loved, or I always liked a more maximalist a maximalist style. I like someone who's trying to impress you and succeeds." Um, who Who are you thinking of when you when you say this? Like, who does this well? Oh, I mean, I think my I always say like my favorite writers are like 20 20th century like mm -hmm. postmodern but not too postmodern just sort of like your classic like novelist like I really like Philip Roth's narrators like yeah books are perfect but the books are very fun to read and very provocative which I like um I like Helen DeWitt obviously uh I like I like David Foster Wallace <laughs> <laughs> uh, sorry. canceled <laughs> I think I think too a lot of the way that I was thinking about writing when I was in college or whatever was informed by like a misunderstanding of David Foster Wallace and I think mm. that that's probably a lot of people in our generation feel the same way like you have this idea about him and then you return to him and you're like oh this is really good but it's not what I remember at all um, right 
And so I, again, I try not to emulate anyone. I try not to copy anyone because I don't think that that's productive, but I like someone who's like putting it all in there and giving it to, you know, I like see it as a gift. I don't, I also don't want to like pretend I'm not writing a book. Right. And I think it's part of trend for clarity and like concision and, and, you know, the constant praise for like spare slim books. It's not that they're all bad, but (laughs) there is this sense that we want the author to pretend like she hasn't made what she's made. And Mm -hmm. that's not what I think books. I think books, the great thing about books is that they're something that someone made. Right, right. Um, And the the fake accounts is too, is sort of like very, um, it's very upfront about like, this is a book, like you're reading a book, you know, in a really, in a, in a way that it's like, come on, you know, it's not like, like hostile. It's like, yeah, we're all on, on this joke together, you know? Yeah. It's, it's not, you don't have to be totally involved in it to like enjoy it and to like understand, you know, it's operating a certain way on right. levels. Right, right. Do you have a favorite Roth novel? Um, I love The Counter Life. Oh, I haven't read The Counter Life. Yeah, it's really fun. The this baseball scene is like absolutely it's just really funny. Um and it's super meta, so that's what I like about Oh man. All right, well check out. <laughs> yeah. Um what is what is next for you, Lauren? Are are you gonna write another book? Would you like did you enjoy writing this book? Would you like to write another one? Is it um a lot of criticism in the in your near future? Um what's next? Um, you know, I like the word count. I, I gotta be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I like, I like the word count. So I definitely hope, you know, not to jinx myself, but I definitely hope to write another book like soon. Um, And, but, you know, we love the takes, right? So I'll probably keep doing some criticism. (laughs) It's, it's very, you know, to be earnest for a second, like, it's really great to be able to like do the thing that I wanted to do. And I'm like really young and I I have all this stuff that I wanted. So I hope to take advantage of that and not like waste it. Yeah, that's it's it's. I mean, I said it before, but I mean, congratulations on everything. I'm so happy that the book is out and that it's so good. And uh, it was a pleasure to read. Thank you very much. Uh, it's fake accounts. It's out on February second, um, which is very soon. But now we have come to the end of our time nearly, which means wow. it's time for the much threatened lightning round. So I'm ready for not this anything untoward i'm not saying anything bad no no not no gonna get in trouble. not gonna get in trouble absolutely not if you do it won't be on me <laughs> um and i say lightning round but i mean feel free to absolutely go off as you please and this will just be i'll throw if most of them are writers some of them are are other things uh and there's maybe about 12 or so uh and then we'll and then we'll close out here but um first of these is fran Leibowitz. your thoughts She's fine. Why? I, I think, I think she's in the news, Lauren. <laughs> I think I haven't watched the movie. Um, I think she's quite funny. Like, I, yeah. I think there's been a conversation about her that I've witnessed on Twitter that I'm not partaken in because I don't, I don't really know that much about her. Obviously, yeah. I know who she is and why she's famous and what she you knows she doesn't write anymore and whatever. <laughs> I, haven't her, I haven't read her books. Uh, and she's like a good a positive figure I think I the the reaction against her is sort of typical and will like fade away and yeah. whatever she's fun I've seen her at Cafe Lou a couple of times oh that's cool 
never talked to her obviously that was wow. weird but I have seen her there uh very New York experience so yeah yeah that is that she is maybe someone I think I would ever want to talk to <laughs> <laughs> I mean I've heard of people come up to her which is just such a misstep yeah I would I mean, maybe she's actually really nice when that happens, but I would never assume that that would be so. Yes, I wouldn't want to find out for myself. No. <laughs> uh, next on the list, Rachel Kushner. I haven't read it. I really haven't read it. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Yeah, Have you? I mean, oh, yeah, sorry. Go I ahead. Really, I haven't read enough of it. I guess that's probably, of course, I've read some, but I, okay. haven't, I haven't read The Flamethrowers, which is the real one that one needs to read, I think. That's, I think that's, I think that's the good one. I think okay. that's the best one, personally speaking. That's not you. I'm not getting you in trouble uh, now. <laughs> the TBR pile, which I'm learning all sorts of bookstagram uh, terminology. Yes. <laughs> uh, Barbara Ehrenreich. She's good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I like her tweets. I think her writing yeah. good. I like her tweets. Yeah, she's fun on Twitter. Yeah. Um, have you read Eve Babbitt's last time? I think you had I not. I saw her in it. Still haven't. All right. Jesus. I'm going to give a homework for a next episode. <laughs> read Rachel Kushner, read Eve Babbitt. <laughs> um, Pauline Kale. Mm, I haven't read that much of her either. Man, I'm just, Sorry. we're flying through this Sorry. segment. I'm underread. I'm reading weird <laughs> people. Um, no, I mean, I obviously have read enough of her to assess the Renata Adler article which i read have read many times yeah. so that you know she seems broadly right yeah yeah <laughs> um lana del rey she's her music is good yeah. i um am resistant to the way that people project things onto her but i think that figures like that this sort of like kitschy ironic americana stuff people i hope will realize that it's not a joke yeah right like <laughs> the projecting of intention onto onto things it's particularly easy with an artist of some kind because i think art is about like agency so mm. you have to assume that everything that they're doing is on purpose and and to create an effect but i you know try to stay away from learning too much about her yeah. But I like her music. Her music is really good. Yeah, me too. Uh, Bruce Springsteen. Great. Fun. You mentioned him in the book. That's why I asked. Oh, yeah. They're listening to Bruce Springsteen in the car. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's just whatever. They were in New Jersey. It's about, theme it's, it's about thematic constructions. Yes. <laughs> uh, David Lynch. I like. I like. Do you, I have, a, do you have a favorite? Love Twin Peaks. I like uh, what's Wild at Heart. I think that's, yeah, I think that's a really good one. Really underrepresented, I think, because it's like a little bit more straightforward mm. uh, and and sort of more like heavy-handedly funny or like purposeful, um, or it seems purposeful. Right. But it's very, it's very good. I saw it at Metrograph. Whenever I just now, I have to just say all the time, like I was at this movie theater once years ago <laughs> <laughs> i know <laughs> would you go to the movies a lot versus like like streaming at home yeah i would i think it's much better uh and much easier to pay attention and I, the movies are i i like having it chosen for me and i think there's yes. this idea that the streaming is bad because it, it makes you passive and you don't choose but actually it requires like a lot more 
um, involvement then you're like oh what's on at the movie theater it's yeah. that also the people who do the programming at movie theaters the ones that I go to are really smart and really good so like yeah. I trust the experts like I don't you know yeah show me, show me something good <laughs> exactly I had like just gotten a membership at Metrograph like like two months before the shutdown happened so I'm really excited to go back the real like glory day of the millennial generation is like a year and a half that movie pass was <laughs> say its name lauren <laughs> it was so good and you just really felt like you were like you were i mean we were in new york we were stealing like it was so it was great i used to go to movies like three or four times a week oh my god it was incredible do you know uh you know uh jamie kalis right the writer uh, yeah, i know her I, but uh, she <laughs> tweeted once that movie pass was our generation's summer of love <laughs> yeah but it was it was great <laughs> I just, I wish we'd come back, you know? Yeah, yeah, I know, I know, I miss it. <laughs> All right, just a couple more of the lightning round. Uh, Substack. I don't care. I mean, like, I don't care. It's not gonna replace regular websites. Like, calm down, right? Lauren, but, no one's editing that stuff. Who cares? <laughs> what are you it, saying? <laughs> I, I just, it, I'm like, my answer to this is like, it depends on the situation. Like, yes. I understand why you would want to do it. Um, I can understand being frustrated with editors. I'm not, yeah, I'm not like editors are the best ever. I would die without them. Like some of them are good and some of them are bad. I can understand getting frustrated with editors. You do need them, but you need a good one. Like not a bad <laughs> one. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I can't read those things though. I don't care. Like oh, yeah. the reason why you need editors is not like the construction of a story, but like some a lot of things people want to write about are just not very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and I can't. I can't. Yeah, uh, three more, and then we're out. Uh, number one, the city of Los Angeles. I've only been there one time to film uh, the short-lived Broadly video series. Ask oh. speaking of pivot, pivot to video. So I can't really speak on it. It seems kind of cool. I don't know. Yeah. I would go there if I could go. I mean. You just hear, I think uh, for me, I think I would need a reason to go there and I wouldn't sure. find there on my book tour, but I don't have a book tour. So I'll probably never go there. <laughs> uh, number two, biking on the streets of New York City. I did it for like a year. I had a fine bike. Another thing that's annoying about America <laughs> is that it's quite hard to get a women's bicycle in my size. I'm six feet tall. Uh, so I had a men's, a men's frame and I don't like the men's frame. Um, yeah. In Europe, the women are tall. So you can get like a Dutch bike that is big enough. Mm. Uh, but I biked to work from Bedstuy to Williamsburg most days and it was just absolutely harrowing and terrible and everybody wants they want you to die they really want you yeah. to die um, so I think it's a valiant pursuit but it is not worth it to me and you always show up everywhere really mad and like sweaty yeah especially in the summer the weather is really not good <laughs> uh, I think they should make it better it, it should it should be but currently yeah. it's not I think Yes. Uh, and then someone stole my bike when I was on vacation in Montreal and I never got a new one because I was like, this sucks anyway. Yeah, yeah. Hard agree on that one. <laughs> and <laughs> the final thing for the lightning round, improv comedy. Oh my God. You know, 
this is a good way to get out my resentments. When I was in college, I auditioned for an improv comedy troupe and I did not make it. Oh my so, God. Yeah, and it's supposed to be fun. You shouldn't be, whatever, Yale's very competitive place, I guess, but you shouldn't, you shouldn't like not get into the improv comedy troupe. And obviously, I, I don't know. I don't know that I perform particularly well on the spot. So <laughs> it's probably for the best. But Nonsense. I, I don't go, you know, I don't pursue that. Anyway. No, of course. I couldn't speak on it. <laughs> Well, Lauren, that's all I've got for you. I want to say thank you again for for coming back on the show. It was such a joy to talk to you again. And seriously, congratulations on the book. I'm I'm so happy to see it come out. Yeah, it was great. Thanks. And I will say to everyone, goodbye. Hi, this is Jimmy. Well, that's the end of the music, but it's not the end of the show. For those of you computer literate parrot heads out there, stick this CD into your computer and you can see an enhanced video of what we do and what we say backstage behind the scenes.